Good morning, everyone. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you decided to join us this morning to brave those elements and uh, come and gather, uh, lift up the name of Jesus, to come before him in prayer and singing. And then finally, uh, to uh, come before his word before we come uh, to the table. Really glad um, that you're all part of this. Um, we are about exactly halfway through this long series that we've set ourselves out for this fall. Um, long story short, what we've sought to do as we've started this school year is to say, let's tackle the whole story of the Bible in 11 weeks. Here's the way we often read the Bible. If we read the Bible at all, oftentimes we read it in pretty small, discrete chunks. We read a verse that's encouraging to us, or two or three, or maybe even a whole paragraph. But putting that in the context of all of the whole long arc of the Bible is something that actually I, I normally don't do or remember to do, and I suspect most of us also don't do that. And so we step into this year that we've called Shaped by Scripture. We're seeking to, let's make sure we actually maybe for the first time have thought about that whole arc all the way from the beginning, the opening words, in the beginning God, in chapter 1 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and all the way to what we see at the very end, the new heaven and the new earth and the city of God with God himself on the throne. How do we get from there to here? That sort of has been um, our journey. We're about halfway through. The, today's week six of 11. There's five weeks behind us, and there's still five weeks to go in front of us. Let's spend a few minutes praying together, shall we? And uh, we'll dive right in with a little bit of a, of a summary to remind everyone how we got here to week six. And uh, then we'll talk about um, this moment when Israel became a kingdom with a king. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for bringing us here together. Somehow, in a way that would never be humanly possible, you have pulled every strand together. Every circumstance that's here, deep and pleasurable joy at being here, the hardship of habitual sin, outright rejection of you, excited embrace for your promises. Somehow they are all in this room. And so, Lord, don't stop now. What you have orchestrated, would you help to make it good and right and beautiful? Would you take whatever it is we have brought to this place and would you redeem it? Would you teach us from your words today that we might be instructed and encouraged in the ways of life? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, if you are our Lord, our rock and redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so long story short, 
11 weeks, they all start with the letters C to help us remember them and work our way through them. And the, the first of those uh, is the opening pages of the Bible in creation. And what we said about creation is that God lovingly, carefully intertwined it all. That the story of creation we have in the Bible is not a biology book, it's not a physics book, it's, it's a book that reminds us of God's loving care and sovereignty. And what, he, what the Bible tries to outline for us is a series of relationships that are good and full and whole because of God's purpose and design. One of those is how we may be and are connected uh, to God. Another one of those relationships is how we are connected to other human beings. There's an intent for something to be really full and flourishing and beautiful about the way we interact with other people. And then finally, because we've been made in God's image and God is a creator, he's, he's given us the stuff of earth to be in relationship and to make something of it. So we have, we have relationship, we have vocation, we have a spirituality. It's, it's all meant to come together. But in the very next chapter, what we see is it all becomes disassembled and falls apart. That's the story of what happens next in Genesis. Is all of these relationships that were meant to um, be designed for flourishing and to reflect the goodness of God's creation back to God in the catastrophe of the garden, it's all fallen away. The story of Adam and Eve tells the story of human willfulness, of the rejection of all that God says is good for something that we think might possibly be better. And in the pursuit of that thing that's better, apart from God, what we find out actually is the, the deep catastrophe and consequence of our sin. That all those relationships are now disassembled. They've been deconstructed. What's in its place is death and hopelessness. That there's a definite end. And as the Bible unfolds through chapters, you know, 3 through, let's say, 11, what we see is this ongoing story of how every time we try to make something better on our own, we make it a little bit worse. Sort of the law of unintended consequences. And it's, it's true for every kind of relationship that we have. So then in chapter 11 of Genesis, God breaks into the story. He chooses one family out of all the families. It's an interesting family, but it's not a necessarily a good or better family than yours or mine. And God tells this family, a man named Abram and his wife Sarah, he's like, you are going to be the vessel through whom all of this is going to come back together and be put back to right. I am going to bless you that you might be a blessing to all the nations. Count the stars, God says to Abram. Your people will be as numerous as those stars, and through them, all nations will come to know me and follow me. And so that you know that, I'm going to make a promise with you. I'm going to set a covenant before you so that you can know, no matter what else might happen, I am still on the move to accomplish this. This is still going to happen. You actually, childless Abram, you actually are going to have a child. And that child will have a child, and that child will have many children. And eventually you'll become as numerous as the stars. And I am at work, even if you can't see it. Well, that one family, they become a tribe, and they become a nation. And they, they actually become a nation that is stuck in slavery. They're stuck under the thumb and under the rule 
of Pharaoh in Egypt. And because God is a promise keeper, he says, I've heard the cries of my people, and now is the time to turn them into a community. I'm going to pull them out of Egypt. They're going to be my unified people. But as we've been learning over the last couple of weeks, it's, it's a little easier to pull the people out of Egypt than it is to pull Egypt out of the people. You can move their location, but you can't always move their heart. And so what we saw was this ongoing effort to prepare them to be something that's different, holy, beautiful, a representation of what God intends for how people live together. And he does that in part by the giving of the law. And he gives this law in Leviticus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. And in many ways, we think of it as pretty confusing, I'll confess. But for the sake of today's story, there's one piece of the law I want to show to you, and that's from Deuteronomy chapter 7, scene, chapter 17. There it is. Bring it up. Starting at verse 14. If you want to follow along in that pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 164. See, God anticipates that as he builds his community, eventually it's going to need to require to become a kingdom. They're going to need a form of government. And he says in Deuteronomy, in the law, he says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among you, your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. There is not an Egypt in your future. This king must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Do you, do you hear how the law is supposed to be setting something aside that's different than probably every other kingdom that was around it? When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. There's, there's going to be an authority greater even than the king, and that's the law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The Israelites carry this law and this promise across the river into the promised land. As God has sought to make them a community, he now has um, set his mind and his heart on conquest, which is what uh, Dave preached over last week. As this community finds themselves formed and identified by God and still needing to be um, puts together, there, there really are two kinds of conquests that God needs to um, develop in them. The, the first is a spiritual one. There is still a battle for the heart, mind, imagination, and spirit of Israel. 
There still is a need for their understanding of who God is to be won over to God. Even as they cross over into the promised land, what we see is they they still are carrying around these petty little idols around with them as if they have any sort of power at all. And that must be rooted out. In the middle of that battle, they also are in the midst of a real physical, person-to-person, army-to-army war. Because in the intervening years, the promised land has been filled with a people who are not of God and are completely, absolutely um, committed to an anti-God kind of a life. And these people who are to receive the promise of this land and the promise of connected relationship with Him and a renewed community together, they need to root out that which is evil and vile in the land. And they do that, but never fully. So they find themselves, for over hundreds of years, they find themselves... um, living in and amongst the confusion of people who have different gods and different ways of life and different power and surrounding kingdoms that want to encroach in on who they are. That's the story of conquest. And in the middle of that, every now and then, um, the Israelites would find themselves in a, in a dark spot and they'd cry out to God and, and God would give them a judge a ruler, to say, I'm not a king, but I I can be the voice of God and I can lead us to repentance and to victory and it'll be okay. And then what we see for several hundred years is this rhythm in Israel that I think actually echoes in my own mind and heart and life. Probably yours too. So again, in the rest of the book of Judges, if you want to read this, by the way, my favorite judge, yes, I have one of those, is Ehud. And if you want to know why Ehud's my favorite, go ahead and read it. And then you can email me and I'll tell you. So for the Israelites, as they're in the promised land, as they've gone through this conquest, life is good. But then you know what happens? Israel forgets. And because they forget, God allows them to be oppressed. And then they cry out, and God gives them a judge. And then they repent, and they're victorious, and life is good. But then they forget, and they're oppressed. They cry out. God sends a judge. They repent. There's victory, and life is good. But then they forget, and they're oppressed. Does it sound anything like the cycle of your own spiritual life? Things are good. You forget. Things aren't so good. You wonder why. You cry out. And God in his loving sovereignty says, I'm going to knit some piece of this back together for you. And you have victory. And it's good. And you forget. Well, Israel goes through that cycle for hundreds of years. And finally, they get to this place where they, they think that they are they're ready for a king, which now we're going to get to this moment of the, the crown, today's, today's theme. The last of the great judges is a man named Samuel. Samuel was faithful. He was courageous. He listened carefully to the Lord. He was a visionary. 
And Samuel had two king, had, pardon me, had two children who were total knuckleheads. And he had in mind, and he assumed that his children were going to take over his reign as a judge after him. And that has not been a good thing. So here's where we are in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel's going to ask for a king. We're going to read this whole thing. Because in a series on the story of the Bible, we should read big chunks of the Bible. This is on uh, page uh, 234, if you want to follow along on that pew Bible in front of you. 1 Samuel, chapter 8. Well, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons, appointed his sons. Is that how that's supposed to go? Remember what we said about Deuteronomy? How do rulers get established? God chooses. Well, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second son was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are praying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are now doing to you. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief because that's the pattern from the king that you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, 
listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Give us this king. We, we want to be like the nations that are around us. We, we see what they have. they have. They have clarity. They have purpose. They have strength. We want to be like them. Give us one of those kinds of things. We want someone to lead us out in battle. By the way, when you read Joshua and Judges, do you know who leads them out in battle? The Lord. This is, this is a major trade downwards. But we want to be like the things that are around us. Will you give us a king? We've taken stock and we want to be like them, not like one of yours. And so the way the story goes very quickly is um, they're given a king named Saul. Saul is charismatic, strong, and powerful, and eventually he fails. He doesn't do the law of the Lord like the warning carried in Deuteronomy 17. And so he loses his anointing, and in his place, Samuel, the last um, sort of royal act Samuel is allowed to do is he uh, anoints the next king, a man named David, who is a man after God's own heart. And he's a good king, except for when he's not. He's victorious, except for when he gives up. He's honest, except for when he's a liar. And somewhere in there, he ends up committing adultery, taking someone else's wife, which Deuteronomy warned against. And that child dies. But then he has another child with that woman, and that woman becomes a king named Solomon. And Solomon became the high point of the kingdom of Israel. In the, time of, in the time of Solomon, everything looked so excellent. It looked so great. There was peace throughout the land. They had trade and tribute coming from the kingdoms that were around them. There was stability and security and strength. It, was, it looked really, really gloriously successful. But it wasn't. You see, in the middle of all that... He also conscripted workers and soldiers. He levied heavy taxes. He took hundreds of wives, amassed wealth for himself. So it looks good, but it was rotten to the core. And eventually after Solomon, the kingdom broke into two a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, ten tribes and two tribes. And those tribes ended up having sort of parallel stories, separate kings, separate capitals. Eventually, things started to fall apart. They had good kings and bad kings, mostly bad ones. And eventually... Both of those kingdoms were swallowed up by stronger kingdoms. Capitals were turned to dust. And there was no more promise. Or so we think. Next week, we'll take up the next part of that story. 
We talk about conceit. So we're in this confusing milieu of sort of trying to understand, well, what is this about? If this is the story of God, if this is what God's doing, how is this a story about me? How can I read this passage and understand what is this thing that happened almost 3,000 3, years ago? How is it about me? What is this about? I can read this story and sense there's a trajectory of what God's doing now, maybe for me, especially conceit, Christ, cross, church, consummation. But this story, what can I learn about it? What does it show me? I just have a couple of things I want to um, point out to you. And um, one of them is this simple, small little phrase, there is no separation of powers in God's kingdom. What the Israelites have sought to do is said, we want God, but we want it our own way. There's this uh, English author who uh, tells this story as a way to sort of illustrate this. And tells a story, uh, he sort of says, just imagine that the Queen of England is coming to your town. What do you do when the Queen comes? Well, you pull up all the weeds, you plant the garden, you paint the fence, you make sure everything looks good, you um, sort of wash down the streets, you dress your best, you, you look as good as you can because the queen represents something important. And we know the queen is good for something, kind of rallies us around and it's all that. So the, the queen comes in and you bow or you curtsy and you, you say, you know, greetings, your majesty, so glad you're here. But in the back of an English person's mind, every English person knows the queen is interesting, but all the power is held by the prime minister. And what this author goes on to say is it turns out that's kind of what happens to us spiritually. We have separated who God is. We have said, we're so glad that you are there as king. We're going to dress up nice. We're going to say the right things. We're going to sort of gather and sort of recognize that you have some kind of an important place. But we're going to separate that from the power we want to have over our own lives. We're used to thinking of separation of powers as a good thing. It's been in the news a lot over the last several months. And when it comes to human government, it's probably a good thing. But when it comes to knowing and following God in his kingdom, there is no room for separation of powers. It is not a good thing to say, of course, we want you as our God, but we want to retain control. Of course, we want all the, we want all the things that you can sort of offer to us, and that's a good, you're, a, you're an important spiritual pez dispenser to us but we want to retain all of the authority and decision-making for our own lives. We've separated the way it is that God wants to operate in our lives. When I was uh, in, in, um, in youth ministry, we often would talk about it in these terms. Because there's this invitation in the New Testament that we would accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. 
There's this understanding that Christ as King is, has come not only as Savior, but also as Lord. And what we would say is, as we were thinking about our own discipleship and sometimes checking in with teenagers and sometimes even uh, in a talk like this, we would say, take a survey of your life. Is it possible that you have said that Jesus is a Savior, but not your Lord? Is it possible that you've decided to receive His goodness and not allow your life to be transformed by His way? Is it possible you've accepted the trappings of the king but have maintained the power of a prime minister? You see, there's, there's no separation of powers in God's kingdom. He wants all of it. And what we see here in this story is the Israelites saying, yeah, 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 that's good, but what we really want is to be just like everyone else. We want to make the decisions. So the first thing I'm challenged by as I read this is, do I do, I do that? Well, let me rephrase that. How do I do that? What are the things that I have done in my own life, and my own manner of living, and the, the practices that I have that are obvious and hidden, where I say, of course, the Lord is my Savior. God is my Savior. Jesus has come in the flesh for me. But he's not going to change this. He doesn't get this corner. He doesn't get to say anything about this part of my life. It's there. Right there. Probably for you too. Is there some place where you've declared God's sovereignty except for where you're still the prime minister? There is no separation of power. That was Israel's mistake. The second thing I just want to point out to you, and this is very close to what Dave uh, said last week, because it's this recurring theme that we see throughout the Old Testament, and that simply is this. Better is a fetter. Do you know that word fetter? It's kind of a funny word, but I'm an English teacher word nerd guy, and, and fetter is like, uh, it's like shackles. It's a chain handcuffs. And what I learn as I sort of observe the life and the story of the Israelites here, I, I learn something about myself. So I'm very much like these Israelites and that I, I survey what's happening in the people around me. I see what they have. I see the stuff that they possess. I see the goals that they are pursuing. They look really good and intriguing and attractive to me. I see those things, and, and what I think, I only think of what might be good about them. I miss what a trap they become. And this is what the Israelites missed about longing for a king like everyone out there. They were, see, they were, the Bible actually says in the law, thou shalt not covet. You will not take a survey of the things that people have outside and around you and say, I want that and I want that, and I want that. And Israel, Israel has done this in this moment with a king. I want that kind of power for our people. I want that kind of rule, and I want that. But you know what happens? 
Choosing what is better outside of God's economy becomes a fetter for you. You end up being trapped by it. The thing that looks so intriguing, shiny, impossible ends up wrapping around you in a way that leads to death. That's what's happened to Israel here. You see, the pursuit of better, simply because it's better, is a, it's a fetter. I want you to think back, if you can, five years, 15 years, 40 years, if you're able to think back that far. I, that's kind of meaningless time for some of us. Like, I think I was, well, I was, I was seven. For some of us in our room, we can think back that far. Think about what you thought of as the good life. What have you been pursuing that is the better thing that's out there? What has been the thing that you've been sort of chasing, pursuing, saying, this is the most important thing I'm going to pursue? How are you now trapped by that thing? probably is good. What we learned in a certain way, a king is not a bad thing. In fact, it says that, um, God planned a king to sort of be a way that we can understand the flourishing of what God's intention was. But the way they've gone about it, the way they pursued it, has now trapped them. And when I think about Israel, I think about my own life, and I wonder, what needs to be recalibrated? What have I allowed to trap me and ensnare me? What thing have I placed in front of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? What thing have I planted in my heart that actually is a weed leading to death? The seed looks kind of good. See, as we follow the narrative arc of Israel, we follow the narrative arc of my heart and yours. We don't need an outside king. What we need is to give sovereignty and lordship back to the one to whom it belongs. Are you ready? This table is a kind of an invitation to that. Give us this day our daily bread. Feed us and nourish us. Show us what is most needful for today. Jesus Christ himself. Everything else is just a shackle. I want to take communion together as a we are in this service, and Carl's going to lead us through the words of institution, but let's pray before we come to this table, shall we? Lord, thank you for the ways that you have um, led us this morning. Thank you for this proclamation that you are willing to even give us what we think we want, that we might discover again what we truly need. Would you help us in our worship and in our singing? 
and they're going out. Discover that you are Savior and Lord now and for all time, for me and for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.